The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Welcome, folks, as we continue in our Doctrine of Man course here. We're at week number four. Now, let's remind ourselves, when we say man, we do not mean male. Man is not synonymous with male. Um, Man is... In the spirit of all this, man is from the Hebrew word Adam, which is the Hebrew word for, for mankind, okay? So, uh, or people kind, as our prime minister would prefer. Um, so we began this uh, series, we're looking at man as God intended, okay? That's how we began. That's the first section here. Man as God intended. Um, and so we began the first week with, or the second week, with uh, mankind created in God's image. And we learned what that meant, to be created in his image. We learn that God's image has been wounded by sin, but has not been destroyed by sin. We learn that God's image appeared to be tied to our personhood, meaning our intellect, our will, our emotions. We said God's image is not tied to our our physical being because God does not have a physical body. Jesus, uh, the son, took on um, the form of flesh, but that's something he added to his divine nature. So God, scripture says God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God does not have a body per se. He created material things, but he himself is not a material thing. So our image, being made in his image, can't mean we look like him physically. He doesn't have a physical appearance per se. Then the next week, we looked at the, uh, still as God, a man as God intended, we looked at the nature of man last week. And we learned that scripture seems to teach a dualism, meaning scripture clearly teaches that we have both a material and an immaterial aspect to our natures. A material and an immaterial aspect to our natures. And these two aspects appear to work seamlessly with one another. We said, we likened it to a musician uh, interacting with the keyboard. Keyboard is limited by how well that keyboard is tuned, that instrument is tuned. When I play my guitar, I am limited by the quality of the guitar that I'm playing, whether it's in tune, the strings are new or old, or there's a, a breakage in the guitar body or something. I, as a musician, I am limited by the instrument that I've, has been placed in my hands. And so it is with a, a human soul. Uh, a human soul is limited by the, the brain uh, Uh, within the body that it is indwelling at that moment. And we learned when it comes to this dualism, you can be a trichotomist or a dichotomist. Trichotomy means you believe that the body, soul, and spirit are three distinct things. Dichotomy means you believe the body and soul are two distinct things, and the soul and the spirit are really two sides of the same coin. The distinctions between soul and spirit to a dichotomist are really more about function than form. It's not as though they're separate entities. They're just different functions that the soul uh, uh, uses. You can be trichotomist or or dichotomist. As a Christ follower, the the Bible really doesn't delineate specifically those. And we we likened it. If If you're a trichotomist and you say, well, it talks about body, soul, spirit. Yeah, but it also talks about heart and mind, and you could really be multiplying things uh, if you're going to get that specific. And uh, we also learned, touched on last week, that uh, the biblical worldview is not the Eastern worldview, or what's referred to as the Gnostic worldview, meaning this concept that our ultimate goal is to be released from these sinful bodies and to be disembodied spirits floating throughout the universe, one with the universe. That is not the biblical worldview. Our ultimate destiny is not to be a disembodied spirit. Our ultimate destiny is to be uh, 
to, to once again be unified, united with a glorified body forever. To be human means to have a body. To be human does not mean to be disembodied. In fact, the Apostle Paul, we learned, called that naked. To be naked is to be a disembodied spirit. And he says, I'd rather be clothed again with, his, with my glorified body. Uh, and we learned last week as well the origin of the soul and what the options are. Where does the soul come from? And we learned there are essentially historically four main options. There's pre-existence. There's meaning your soul uh, existed prior to being united with your body. Uh, there's creation. God creates a soul every time. Um, there's traducianism, which is the idea that when the, the sperm and the egg uh, unite, that at some point in there, a soul uh, emerges from, or is created through the, not God separately creating it, but through the physical act of sperm and egg. Um, just like that creates a body that also creates a soul. And then there's emergentism, which is the idea that when the body reaches some level of complexity, at some point, uh, a soul emerges from that complexity. Um, just like wetness emerges from hydrogen and oxygen coming together, a soul emerges from a, a, a sperm and egg coming together at some level of complexity. Now, John, is John here? Yes, you had a great question last week that I couldn't answer, and I don't like not being able to answer questions. That bothers me. So I uh, looked up, you asked a question, why was Origen, we said Origen was uh, condemned as a heretic. Why was he condemned as a heretic for his view of preexistence? I, I looked into that, and essentially, the best I could find, there was no answer where it said, here's why Origen was condemned a heretic. But the best response I could find, uh, looking back, why it was refused was, there's only three real reasons, or possibilities to explain pre-existence, uh, meaning your soul existed eternally with God forever. That's Mormon teaching, and that is false doctrine. We're not eternal. We're immortal, meaning we have a beginning and no end, conceivably, but we're not eternal, meaning we have no beginning and no end. There's a difference between immortal and eternal. And uh, so to pre-existence would require, first of all, that we either be um, existing eternally with God. That would make us equal to God, and so that's out. Um, or it would mean that uh, you were created previously, um, sometime in eternity past, and you've been sitting around somewhere in eternity waiting for your body to be born. And, um, and, uh, and theologians would, would argue that that goes against Genesis 2-7, which says, you know, God breathed into uh, the body, and he be, Adam became a living being. I think that's a pretty weak argument myself. Uh, I can understand that argument. I think it's kind of weak, but it, it, there was an argument given against preexistence. And the third one is, the other th uh, only other option is, is that you go from body to body, that you've inhabited other bodies previous to your present body, and you just keep being transmigrating to these new bodies, which clearly is not biblical. I mean, Scripture teaches in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto us once to die, and after that, the judgment. So you have to pick from one of those three in pre-existence. You've existed eternally, or you've existed previously, and you've been hanging around in some waiting room somewhere, um, which doesn't sound too right. And the third one is that you've been inhabited several bodies, which definitely is not true. So that's why he was condemned and was condemned as a heresy. So let's keep moving. We're saying now we're going from man as we were initially intended. Now we're looking at man as we presently exist, meaning in contrast to God's original design. 
We've been learning about what we are intended. Now, what about what we're actually experiencing right now? Something has happened to change our trajectory, our experience of life. We were designed to do this, but we're not doing that. We're doing this. What happened? That's what we're about to learn over the next few weeks. And this morning, we're looking at the fall of man. Now, by fall, we mean the loss of previous position. When someone has fallen from their position, it means they've lost something that was intended or that they previously had. That's what we're looking at here, the fall of mankind. So let's look at passages that deal with the fall. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 uh, says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, which is the garden of Eden, to work it and take care of it. Then the Lord God commanded the man You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice it's not the tree of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So Adam is given instructions. He's actually been given the opportunity to obey. That's what this is all about. He's been given the opportunity to obey. He's been given the opportunity to display trust. And this wasn't onerous, was it? It was only one tree from the entire Garden of Eden. So there's all these other trees from which he could choose that were all wonderful, I'm sure. But there's just one tree. It's not as though God said, okay, all the trees you cannot touch, you can only eat from this one tree over here. But everything else is off limits. Okay, that would seem a little unreasonable. But God says, no, it's quite the opposite. Anything is yours in this whole garden except for this one tree. That's the one that you can't eat from. Why? Well, he was, being, he was giving us an opportunity to choose, an opportunity to, to obey, to learn. The, God's intention was this. I want you to learn the knowledge of good and evil, the difference between good and evil. I want you to learn this, not by experiencing evil, but by experiencing good. I want you to learn this, learn the knowledge of good and evil by experiencing the good and shunning the evil. Now, the tree wasn't evil, nothing in the tree itself. It's what it represented. So shun the evil, choose the good, and through that you will learn the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, let's read that. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? By the way, that's the first question in the Bible. Did God really, as I remember, did God really say that you must not eat from the trees in the garden. But God did, uh, the woman said to the serpent, uh, we may eat from uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did not, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So something's being withheld from you is the implication. It's not, we realize, but that's what they're being told. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. So he's with her this whole time. And he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So in this moment, Satan tempts. And Eve, as we learn later, the Apostle Paul describes that Eve is deceived, but Adam disobeys. 
Adam's one who'd received the pronouncement, don't do this. He passed it on to Eve. Eve is deceived, but Adam knowingly disobeys. And rebellion and its consequences enter into the human experience here, according to Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now, let's flip to the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, verse 12 to 21. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin's not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So there's this contrast going on here between Adam and Jesus. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses, many sins, and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification for, and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's all this saying? In some way, Paul just taught us, Adam's rebellion affected all of humanity. Some type of floodgate was opened. We're going to unpack that more next week. But clearly in this passage, in some way, and Paul really doesn't say how here, but in some way, Adam's rebellion affected all humanity. Some floodgate was opened with consequences for all humanity. I think that's pretty clear in this passage. In Paul's mind, there was some solidarity between Adam and us at that moment, at the fall. And as I said, we'll dig into that more next week. All right, Romans chapter 7. Turn the page in Romans 7, verses 7 to 12. Paul picks up on this. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. He didn't say he wouldn't have sinned. He said he wouldn't have known that he was sinning if it hadn't been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For a part, or even exposed in me every kind of coveting. Um, but uh, for apart from the law, sin was dead. 
I didn't know about sin apart from the law. I experienced it, but I didn't know about it. Um, But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. What's he saying here? The destructive power, a destructive dynamic of, known as sin, was exposed by the law. Think in these terms. The law is to sin what a smoke detector is to fire. The law is to sin what a smoke detector is to fire. It exposes it. It doesn't fight it. The law exposes sin. It doesn't fight sin. You know a great illustration that came to me as I was looking over my notes yesterday is that alarm company commercial where there's a bank being robbed and all the people in the bank are on the floor. You know, the robber's there. Put your hands up, everyone. And there's a guy in a uniform standing there doing nothing. And the people are laying on the floor with their hands down. They look up at the guard and they say, what are you doing? Do something. And he says, oh, I'm not a security guard. I'm a security monitor. I only uh, notify people if there's a robbery. And then he says, by the way, there's a robbery. (laughs) That's what the law does. The law doesn't fight sin. It simply exposes sin and says, oh, by the way, you're, you're sinning. It's not causing you to sin. It's just simply saying, by the way, coveting, that's a sin. I didn't know it, and I was doing it. Yeah, you've been sinning the whole time. So the law, which is holy and good, yet it increases my knowledge of sin. That's what Paul's saying here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 21. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So again, Adam's sin somehow unleashed death upon all of humanity. As in Adam, all die. So Adam's sin somehow unleashed death on all humanity. How? He doesn't specifically say here. Okay? And the last verse we'll look at is 1 John 3, verse 4. James, Peter, John, Jude, Revelation, near the end. 1 John chapter 3, not the Gospel of John, the letter of John, near the end of the New Testament. 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So what is, sin is law breaking. Sin is lawlessness. Meaning, sin is the ignoring of restraints. It's the ignoring of taboos. Okay. Before we systematize this and do our best to sort of explain it over the last 20 minutes, are there any questions about the content, understanding the basic principles that are being taught in these passages? Okay, well, let's do our best to systematize it then. Some quick questions that we'll do our best to to answer as we move along. What do we do with the Genesis account of Adam and Eve and the fall of mankind? Is this a literal event with literal people or is it a purely symbolic story? Well, here's the thing. The story does appear to be filled with symbolism. You can't get away from that. 
I mean, Adam is the Hebrew word for mankind. Uh, Eve is called the mother of all living persons. Uh, so they're both given a wider symbolic significance than just the, uh, being individuals. You've got the tree of life. You've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, these are clearly symbolic references. However, although symbolism is obviously involved, it appears that we've got more than symbolism going on here. As your outline says, the fall appears to be a historical event involving historical figures. The fall appears to be a historical event involving historical figures. Why do we say this? Well, Adam is included in the genealogy of, of historical figures, meaning there's no break between the story of Adam and then the historical figures in the rest of Genesis. So Adam's considered historical in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul treats Adam, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament treats Adam as a historical figure. In Paul's speech uh, in Athens, he says in Acts 17, 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. Uh, the Apostle Paul contrasts Adam with the historical Jesus. So you can't do this contrasting uh, if there's not similarities. You wouldn't say... And, you know, Pinocchio and Jesus. No, that's, that's not a contrast. Pinocchio didn't exist. Jesus did. Uh, he, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, So it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. So he's contrasting historical with historical. Paul treats Adam and Eve as historical in 1 Timothy chapter 2.13. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And he uses this as a pillar in an argument he's making. So here's the key, and as it says on your outline, I don't think it's a blank, but the fall appears to be a historical event told in dramatic, a literary, a figurative way. Okay? The fall appears to be a historical event that's told in a dramatic, literary, figurative way. Is everything that happens in the Genesis story a, a historical fact? I think you could argue that some of it is told in a poetic, uh, metaphorical way. You could say everything is absolutely historical and factual, and you could also argue and say you know, some of it is told in a, in a poetic way. Regardless of that, it's based upon historical individuals and a historical event. I don't think there's getting around that. Number two, man was originally created, and we've learned as we're systematizing all this, second thing we can learn is man was originally created in the state of integrity. Integrity, meaning uh, whole or healthy, meaning all parts working in unity together. Okay, that's what integrity means. It's all, all working together. It's whole and healthy. Okay. His soul and body were perfect and in harmony. It's the next blank. In harmony with each other. So we're in perfect integrity and everything, the soul and body were working in harmony with each other. The next line in your blanks. His intellect, will, emotions, and desires were all in line with God. They were all in line with God. So our soul was in line with God. His body was free from disease and harm. Next question that we're going to answer, number three, uh, that we can pick up from what we learned here. What is sin? Well, as your outline says, sin is the rejecting of and rebellion against God's nature, law, and authority. Sin is the rejecting of and rebelling against God's nature, law, and authority. 
We're going to hit a pause button here because I, I want to get you to think for a moment. What does that mean? Sin is the rejection of and rebellion against God's nature, law, and authority. The key in all this is the word nature. Kind of underline that on your outline or circle it for a moment. See, some have tried to argue this way. Is something good because, because God says it's good? Or is something good because it's just good in itself? Whether God said it was good or not, it would be good. Think about that. Is something good because God says it's good? I, de- I declare this is good. Okay. That's now good. Or something good because, no, whether I say that's good or not, that is good. So I'm just acknowledging that it's good. That, that's black. I didn't create it as black. I, I'm acknowledging reality. Yeah, that's black. So is something good because God says it's good? Or is it good because it was already, it's good in itself? Now think carefully. How would you respond? If something is good because God says it's good, that means that God could randomly change his mind. All right, torturing innocent people for fun is bad. You know something? Changed my mind. Torturing innocent people for fun is now good. In fact, thou shalt do it. I'm God. I can change the rules if I want. Hmm. Okay, maybe, maybe saying something is good because God says so is not a really good option. So let's go with the other one. Something is good because it's just good in itself. Well, if it's good in itself, then God has nothing to do with it. And goodness is actually above God and judging God. When we say God is good, really we're saying goodness is God because God would only be good if he measures up to the standard that is called good. So goodness would actually be God. Ooh, that's not good. So which is it? Is something good because God says it's good or something good because it's good in itself? Looks like we're trapped, doesn't it? We are. There's no answer. No, there's an answer. We're not trapped. It's a false dilemma. There's a third option. And that's why I had you circle the word nature. It's given in point three in your outline. Something is good so far as it measures up to God's moral nature. God is good. God himself is the standard of goodness. Something is as good as far as it measures up to God's moral nature. God or Good is not God's opinion at any given moment. Good is God's unchanging, eternal nature. In fact, it goes this way. Uh, Think in these terms. Persons, the the Trinity, out of persons flow principles, things that ought to happen, and out of the principles flow precepts, laws. Okay? Persons, principles, precepts. Think in those terms. So God... His nature is good. And out of his nature flow principles. How we ought to treat one another. In order to measure up to God's nature. God is love so we ought to love one another. Be holy God says because I am holy. So that's what we ought to be. We ought to, that's the principle. We should be holy because he's holy. And here's some precepts. To do X, Y, Z would be unholy. So don't do these things. Why? Because we should be holy. Why? Because God is holy. 
See, so it's not God just making stuff up or it's not God following some outside standard. He is holy. It's his nature, okay? And that's why sin is the rejection of and the rebellion against God's nature and, and then his, his principles, his laws and his, his authority and so on, okay? The law and authority spring out of who he is. So sin is anything that falls short of God's moral nature. And it's rooted in, in Scripture, we see that sin is rooted in pride. It says in Genesis 3, 5, remember what Satan said, the serpent, for God knows, again, he's lying, he's deceiving. For God knows that when you eat from that fruit of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Literally, what he said we learned last week, you will literally be gods, knowing good from evil. It was root, so he was, it's rooted in pride. Don't you want to be God? You could be God ruling your own universe. Yeah, you're, you're good enough, and God's stopping you from that. How dare he? It's rooted in pride. It's rooted in covetousness. James 1, 14, 15 says, Each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own des- evil desire and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So he, he uses the, the, the cycle of, uh, of procreation as sort of symbolic of sin here. But it's, you're tempted when you're dragged away and enticed, look at that, by your own evil desire, coveting, I want something that I don't have. And then the third root is unbelief, Romans 14, 23 says, whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Meaning, if you're doing something and you, you know that it goes against what you, has been revealed to you, it's not a faith, you, you know you're, you're not trusting in God by doing this. He says, that is the root of sin. Let's keep going. Number four, and then we'll open up for questions. Man was originally created, we've learned from these passages, man was originally created with the ability to not sin. We were originally created with the ability to not sin. Meaning, he or they had the ability to continually and successfully resist temptation. We were created with the ability to not sin. With the ability to continually and successfully resist temptation. Number five, at the fall, mankind went from the state of integrity to the state of corruption. So we went from the state of integrity with the ability to not sin to the state of corruption. It says, he went from having the ability to not sin. It's the next blank, number five. Corruption's the first blank. He went from having the ability to not sin to not having the ability to not sin. Just think that through for a second. We went from having the ability to not sin to not having the ability to not sin. Meaning, our wills became so polluted that we lost the ability to continually say no to temptation. We were created with the ability to continually say no. They didn't have to say yes to temptation. We had the ability to not sin. We lost it. We lost the ability to continually, as a lifestyle, say no to to temptation. Think in these terms. It's similar to an addict where, you know, when we get addicted to something, we're responsible for our condition as addicts. We've lost, but then you get to a point when you can't say no anymore on your own. You've lost the ability to say no. 
No one made you become an addict. It was your choice initially. It was my choice initially. But then I cross a line where I can no longer, at one time could say no, I can no longer say no to this. I've lost the ability. And that's what's happened with, with human nature. His body also became weakened by the corrupting power of sin. Okay, so where did sin originate? Did God create sin? No. Uh, scripture clearly teaches that he didn't. I've given you a bunch of passages there that I, I won't dig into all of them, but the holiness of God makes it clear that no, God is not the creator of sin. Okay? Uh, in James 1.13, just read that one. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. That's not his nature. He's holy. Okay? So God clearly didn't create sin. You can, I think I gave you a bunch of verses, did I not? No? If I didn't, just jot down Genesis on the mar- margin there, ahead of s- number six or whatever. Jot down Genesis 18.25. Genesis 18.25. Deuteronomy, just put D-E-U-T, D-E-U-T. Deuteronomy 32.4. Deuteronomy 32.4. Um, Job 34.10 Job 34.10 and James 1.13 look up those verses and they'll clearly I gave you Genesis 18.25 look up those and it gives you a clear sense that no God did not create sin so if he didn't clearly create sin, where did sin come from? Number six in your outline. Sin originated in the expression of creaturely freedom. Sin originated in the expression of creaturely freedom. God's creation, Satan, Adam, Eve, exercised their freedom to accept or reject God's authority and design. So it came from the expression of creaturely freedom. God's creation be the angels or humans, exercise their freedom to accept or reject God's authority and design. Someone might ask, why did God even give us this freedom? Why didn't he just create a world where we couldn't have freedom? Well, because love is the highest experience you can experience. And God designed us to experience the highest thing we could experience, which is love. And love is a choice. You can't love without choosing. I could program my computer to say, I love you, Darren, every morning. But that doesn't mean when I turn on my computer, it loves me. You can't program love. Love is a choice. And so God created us in a world where we could exercise our choice. So when you study the biblical account, the first human pair trusted their their own answers to some foundational questions. What's right or wrong? They chose to reject that it was right to obey God and wrong to disobey God. They said no to that. What is true? They chose to reject the belief that God was telling them the truth about the consequences of disobeying God. And who am I is the key foundational question they chose to answer on their own. They chose to reject the recognition that they were created beings made in God's image and dependent upon God, their creator. And instead, they chose to believe that they could be as or like God. And their choice was based on pride, covetousness, and unbelief. Next week, we're going to say, okay, so how exactly did Adam's sin affect us? Are we being punished for what he did? We're going to look at that and answer that next week.
Let's open it up for questions on what we learned today. Number four, man was originally created with the ability to not sin, meaning had the ability to continue and successfully resist temptation. It's the summary of all of this. When we systematize all of those verses, what we learn from it is that uh, essentially that's what all of these combined together are teaching us. So the question is, is sin, uh, we listed pride, covetousness, and unbelief, but it's because God is love, is sin rooted in ungratefulness, uh, ultimately. Um, Yeah, well, well, pride is placing self above all else, isn't it? And which could be a form of ungratefulness, I suppose. Um, if, if I wanted to tease it out, um, ungratefulness is, is seeing what you have and not appreciating what you have. Not loving God for what he's given. And again, that is almost a form of covetousness as well. It's not appreciating what you have, but wanting what you don't have instead of valuing what you have. So it could be a nuanced version of that. I see what you're saying. So you're saying, we're, it's a great question. You're saying not having the ability to not sin, meaning that, um, I, mean, I mean, Paul teaches in Romans, no one's righteous, not even one. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So that, that's a very broad statement he's making. Um, he doesn't say, so far, he doesn't say, as of the writing, no one has yet, but someone may. No, it, it's a blanket statement in Pauline theology that no one is righteous, not even one. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So in other words, no, we have lost the ability to not sin. No one is righteous in ourselves. Otherwise, if this was true, Jesus did not need to come. We did not need a savior. We just needed to try harder. But the, prop, the, the teaching of scripture appears to be, no, we are helpless in ourselves. There's nothing we can do to merit our salvation. It's grace. By grace you save through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. For no one can boast. If we could be saved on our own, we could boast. But he's saying no one can boast. It's impossible to boast because there's nothing we can do. So I think we're on pretty solid ground biblically to say that we have lost the ability to not sin. Oh, gotcha. Yes, we will be touching on that next week. So the qu- great question. The question is, okay, if I don't have the ability to not sin, then he, he's saying, then why am I being blamed for something that it's impossible for, for me to not do? That was actually Pelagius' argument uh, when we talked about, oh, we haven't talked about Pelagius yet, have we? Next week, we will be answering that question because that's called Pelagianism, which is Pelagian taught that, yes, you have the ability to not sin and you're just not using that ability Go ahead. So the question is, are we talking about both sides of our mouth because we say none are righteous, not one? Uh, but then in the Old Testament, talking about the righteous and the unrighteous, I think it's a, it's a uh, grading on the scale here when we're talking in these terms. There's, there are some who are more righteous than others. Um, there are some who are more wicked than others. Um, and so I think when we look at Old Testament usage and even New Testament usage of these things, there's two types of righteousness. There's legal righteousness and there's experiential righteousness. Like there's legal sanctification and experiential sanctification. I'm declared righteous and then I'm gone about to be made righteous. So the Apostle Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians, you know, to the church, you know, to the righteous, to the, 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 
the church in Corinth and how they're set apart and wonderful. And then he says, now let me talk about the sexual immorality and stuff that's going on. So, whoa, which is it? Well, you're declared sanctified. You're set apart by God. Now, then, he helps us to experience what we've been declared to be. So, what Paul is teaching is, is that um, there's, there are levels of righteousness. All of us are equally declared righteous as followers of Jesus, but we're not all, all experiencing the same level of righteousness. So, I don't think we could be wooden in those terms, particularly in the Old Testament. So, there is a, the purpose of the Old Testament predominantly is to expose sin for what it is. And so uh, there's, there are people who are more righteous than others, but even Israel, when they were considered more righteous, still needed to have the sacrifices to cover their sin. So they weren't sinless. So I don't think we can be wooden with those terms, would be my understanding. Yes. So when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, did he intervene in his freedom? Actually, when you look at that passage, it goes back and forth. It says God, he hardened himself, God hardened his heart. He hardened himself, God hardened his heart. Um, I, I would, I, as I understand those passages, it's like when I'm shoveling a driveway. I'm from Ontario. We do that back there. And when I'm shoveling a driveway, um, sometimes I get calluses on my hand. And I would say, that shovel calloused my hands, hardened my hands. Well, actually, strictly speaking, it was my interaction with the shovel that hardened and my body hardened itself against that shovel in, in response to that shovel's presence in my life. I would say there's a similar dynamic going on with Pharaoh and God. Um, so I don't think God made Pharaoh think something and then punished him for thinking it. That's called Calvinism, and I don't think that's what's happening here. I, I think this is more Pharaoh's, inter- he hardened his own heart, God hardened his heart, he hardened his own heart. Um, that's like, you know, I can't make you angry. I can give you cause to be angry. But you can say, Darren made me angry. Well, no, actually, Darren was at the front of the room and you're at the back. He didn't make you do anything. You chose to respond to Darren by being angry. Why would you be angry with me, first of all? But (laughs) it was your choice, right? And uh, so I I think there's a similar dynamic going on there with Pharaoh. That'd be my understanding. Yes. Yes. So when we talk about man was originally created in the state of integrity, what do we mean? Intrinsically, Within and without, we are in complete harmony with God, with ourselves. We were functioning fully as we were designed to function. Um, we had everything we needed within ourselves and in relation outside of ourselves to live in harmony, body and soul. And then sin corrupted that and we got into the state of disintegrity. All right, folks, we're going to stop there. Next week, we're going to dig into this. Are we being blamed for what Adam did? You think, that doesn't sound right, but that's actually the core theology for the last couple centuries, or a couple thousand years. You say, how does that make sense? We're going to look at that next week. All right, God bless you. See you then. 